Now, we're in this series called uh, Bible 101. We're in week 11, and we may be halfway through. I don't know. We're learning how to read the Bible by studying the book of Colossians. And, um, wow, Giles and Muriel are here. Hi. Wow. It's great to see you guys. This may be like the weirdest sermon ever. Okay, moving right along. When Tammy and I first moved to Florida... We were faced with something we'd never been faced with before, and it wasn't love bugs, and we had the issue of breathing water instead of air, and there were storms in the evening and hurricanes, and none of them was as bad as what we considered the greatest threat to us in Florida. It was called a homeowner's association. (laughs) We didn't know what those were. We had no idea. We thought it was bad in the summer, but then when the snowbirds came down in the winter, the rules and restrictions and the vigilante enforcement was amped up in ways we never even dreamed of. We'd been in our new home less than one month, and I was already planning on moving. Uh, It was crazy. Rules, restrictions, they can be so burdensome, it made no sense to us. I have people tell me that church feels like that that they tell me that the rules and the laws and the restrictions keep them away. They flee from the legalism that they see in scriptures and the manner in which those laws have been enforced by others. They plan to move away from the church and now they've stayed away. It breaks my heart because when man, when God placed man in the garden, he only gave him one law. Then with sin in the world, he gave the entire Old Testament to the Jewish people to prove that nobody could actually do them, which is interesting. And then when Jesus came, he said, okay, um, there's only two laws that you have to follow now. Um, I came to set you free from the bondage of trying to perform your way into God's favor. I came to set you free from, from trying to earn your way to God because see all those things in the Old Testament, they're incredible because they all point to Jesus, but they don't point you the way home because you can't do them. That's what we're going to explore today. We're studying the second C of Bible study, which is learning what this meant to the original audience. What did it mean to those who first read it? We have a good understanding of what it meant to them. We have to know that before we can decide and hear the Holy Spirit tells us how it applies to us. We're looking for timeless truth. We're looking for the gold nugget of truth that's in the scriptures so we can bring it forward so we can begin to understand it. Today, we're going into the next session of Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to cover verse 16, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 17. We are, from the beginning of 16 all the way to the end of 17. And we're really not even going to get through that, to be honest. We're going to be challenged to understand some things that don't make sense to us. And we're going to find that when we start Bible study, we may start off in the verse of Colossians, but we'll end up in Deuteronomy and Nehemiah and Isaiah and John and Matthew and 1 John and Revelation and a lot of other Hebrews and other passages that we never expected to end up in when we started reading this one verse in Colossians. I repeat over and over that Scripture interprets Scripture. That when we don't understand something, the answer is usually found in one of the other books of the Bible. When we begin to interrogate the text, we move from context to what it means we find ourselves asking questions. Those questions, more often than not, are invitations from the Holy Spirit to go look at another part of the book. 
In order to study the Bible, we have to be willing to let the Holy Spirit reveal His lesson. We're going to see today that one short verse in Colossians is going to take us throughout the entire Bible connecting dots from Genesis to Revelation. That's why Bible reading plans don't always help as much as Bible study plans. You see, because here's the deal. If I go into this text and I say, okay, I'm going to read the first chapter of Colossians. And my goal today is to get through the first chapter of Colossians. That's what I'm reading today. Well, it could be that the Holy Spirit just wants to take you through the first three words. But your goal is to go through the whole thing. And then you miss out on the message that the Spirit wants to teach you. One of the things I love about the Holy Spirit is that He always seems to show you things you didn't expect to see and remind you of things you didn't know you remembered. Like today, we're going to start out talking about some of the kosher Jewish laws. And the Holy Spirit's going to take us to a place where we understand the entire covenant of God. I never expected to preach on that when I opened this scripture. You never know what the lesson's going to be. You never know what he's going to teach you. You may know the scripture you want to study, but you don't know where you're going to end up. It's the ultimate adventure. It's a blast because you open up the book and all of a sudden God's like, you remember that when Jesus, where, where was that? And you go dig and you find it. And then you get there and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, well, that reminds me of this. And you go dig over here and you find it and you don't know where you're going. It's like those things where you, you find the treasure and then it tells you where to go next. And then you find the next treasure and it tells you where to go next. And you have no idea where you're going to end up, but you know it's going to be good. And that's the beauty of Bible study. That's what I love about it. So let's look at our verse. Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And we look at that verse and we're like, okay, that's weird. But we're seasoned observers, right? So the first thing we notice is there's a connecting word there. Therefore, then we see a command, let no one. And then there's one of our favorite things, which is a list. Four things listed. And so we look at this and we go, okay, all right, therefore. And then we have this command and then we've got these four things. And so we move to context. What did this mean to them? We begin to interrogate the text. We begin to think about the political and the geographical and the theological and the historical and all the cultural things going on in the first century. What was Paul telling them and why is he telling them this now? Why did he choose to link this to what he just said? Why is that therefore there? What what is it that he just said that's going to move us to what he's saying now? Why is this a command and not a recommendation? Why is it a list? Why this list? Why these four things? We begin to interrogate the text. What do they have in common? Why are they in that order? Why are those four things included in the list? What did I expect to be in the list that's not there? We're interrogating this text. What's excluded? What do the four things have in common? How do they relate to the command? What tense are the verbs? We begin to interrogate. We begin to ask. We know, because Paul has told us in the previous part of this section, that false teachers are coming, and some of them are Jewish. And it looks like Paul is beginning to address Jewish kind of things. Therefore, notice that. Remember what we've been learning. What's he referring to? Well, Paul has been telling us, you know 
who he is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things are created. Everything's created in him, for him, by him. That's who he is. You were dead. Then he brought you with him. You shared in his baptism, his resurrection. You walk in newness of life. You've been reborn. You're circumcised in the heart, not by hands. All those things we've been learning about, Paul says, because of all that, don't forget all that. Here's what I want you to know. Based on what you know about yourself, based on what you know about Jesus, based on what you know to be truly true, based on what his resurrection means to you, think about everything you know to be true. Because, Paul tells them, there's a tsunami coming. And it's a tsunami of false teaching and philosophy and empty deceit and elemental spirits and human tradition that we studied last week. It's not according to Christ, but that doesn't matter because it's coming. And you need to remember who you are because certain things are headed your way. Therefore, and he continues, let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The connector, therefore, then the command, let no one. Let no one do what? Let no one pass judgment on you. Let me stop right here. I've seen people rip this verse out of context. You can't judge me. Okay, but we're seasoned Bible studiers, and we know that this command is linked to a list of four things. Paul has determined the scope of what this means. This doesn't mean that you should never let someone pass judgment on you. I know that, and I know you know that because you saw the list. As believers in Christ, we're to help one another. We're to love one another. And part of loving one another is showing people what they're blind to, in love, with grace and mercy. Challenging them in areas where they are not following God. Not letting them stay where they are. Loving them too much to keep yourself quiet. To remove the plank from your eye, but he'd still go take the speck out of theirs. And you do it with grace and mercy and love. We're told to judge those who have surrendered to Christ. When you come out of the baptismal waters, you're telling your church, hold me accountable, I'm a follower of Jesus. We are not told to judge non-believers. In fact, if you watch Jesus, he never once took the sin of a non-believer and put it in their face. Those who professed to follow him and didn't, brood of vipers, he went after them. So this verse does not mean that we're not to allow people to judge us. What it means is, in these four areas, don't let people judge you. Questions of food and drink. With regard to a festival, which are the Jewish feasts. With regard to the new moon, which was something that they looked at at the beginning of the month to determine what day the festival would be, there was a celebration of the new moon. When the priests saw the new moon rise up every month, they would blow a horn. It was a celebration. It was something, a tradition, a ritual that they did. And then he says, with regard to a Sabbath, don't let anybody pass judgment on you on these four things. Why this list and why now? Well, these are teachings of the Jewish people. Specifically, the Jewish mystics that are coming. We talked about them last week. What you eat and drink, sticking to the Jewish kosher laws, what you do with the Jewish festivals, the celebration of the new moon, the Sabbath, <clears throat> these things, according to Jews, 
unlock the magic of God in the mystics. The mystics believe that by doing these things, you earn God's favor and new revelations are coming to you. It's a mystical thing. By performing, you bring about the, the, the actions of God. And they're coming to teach. And Paul's like, you better be ready. Because they think there are secret messages locked away in these things. There, there, there are ways that they believe they can make God do what they want him to do. Jewish mysticism is one of the greatest challenges of messianic churches today. They really struggle with this. That people, they, they come to messianic churches because they're Jewish or they like the messianic idea. And then what happens is they love Jesus, they fall in love with Jesus, but over time, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish rituals become almost as important or perhaps more important than the fact that they're in Christ. And it's a challenge for them and it's a challenge for us and it was a challenge for the first century church. That teaching concerns Paul. Remember, he's so concerned about it, he's writing the church of people he doesn't know. And he's telling them, don't elevate Jewish rituals above the grace and freedom that comes through your faith in Jesus Christ. The question that Paul's really choosing to answer here, and one that I think should concern each and every one of us, is this. Now that Jesus has come, what do we do with Jewish practices, laws, and temple services? Now, you guys know I have preached on the feasts, the tabernacle. I've preached on end times. I've preached on uh, Jewish traditions. And in every one of those series, I told you that the importance of Jewish traditions, of Jewish law, of the feasts, is that they point to Jesus. That you see Jesus in every feast. You see Jesus in the way we approach God in the tabernacle. The point of the entire Old Testament is that it points to Jesus not necessarily that we are to do everything in there, otherwise we'd be stoning people outside. Now, there are a lot of restrictions in the Old Testament, dietary restrictions given to them by God in the wilderness. And then there are additional restrictions they placed on themselves. For instance, the Jewish leaders added 620 things to God's word that says obey the Sabbath. 620 don't do this, don't do that. You can do this, but only this far. You don't. All these things added to the Sabbath. It created a burden for people. The book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus are full of regulations. When you read them, you're like, who can remember all this? Now, you've got to understand something. The Jewish people had been imprisoned by the Egyptians for over 400 years. That's over 100 years older than our nation. Think about that for a minute. Imagine if from the beginning of our country, all of us were slaves. Every day, every decision is made for us, where to be, what to eat, what we can do with our bodies, what we can and don't do. We had no freedom. Everything's decided for us. It was the same way for our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and our great-great-grandparents. We'd never actually made a single decision with freedom in our entire life. And in fact, we'd never even really witnessed one. We have been in bondage for over 400 years. And then God says, I'm going to set you free. All of a sudden, they had freedom to do anything. But God didn't want them to do anything because he's got a Messiah that's got to come from these people. They needed to remain a nation of God's people. They needed to do things that separated them from the rest of the world. The rest of the world needed to look in and see them as different as a people. And so God had a lot to teach them. He had to teach them how to protect themselves spiritually and physically. If you look at a lot of the laws, there, there were microbiology in Scripture. 
we knew because of their sin nature, they were going to face all kinds of temptations. He knew they might hurt themselves physically by what they choose to do or eat, and that they might hurt themselves spiritually as well. So God gave his people his laws, included almost everything you can think of, all focused on how to remain spiritually clean. It eventually required the sacrifice of innocent animals whose blood would cover sins. We covered this in detail in our series on the tabernacle. It's available online. So since the Exodus, the Jews have been given very strict laws to follow, laws that kept them in a right relationship with God, laws that covered almost every aspect of their lives, and laws given to them for one reason. They were his people. They were his people, not because they'd done anything, but because he decided that. They were also the bloodline of the future Messiah. And every one of them was separated from God because of their sin nature, the way they were born. So these dietary laws, the celebration of the feast, the observing of God's command regarding the new moon, the honoring of the Sabbath were important observances for the Jewish people to obey in the Old Testament. They were God's covenant people. And God had rules for them to follow, ways that they could still have a relationship with him while they were still in their sin nature. By sacrificing innocent animals, by doing certain rituals, they could stay in God's favor for a while. But remember that we live on the other side of the cross. And so did the people in Colossae. Jesus was the final sacrifice that allowed all of us to enter the Holy of Holies, covered spiritually in Jesus' blood forever, permanently changed, forever reborn, now a spiritual person, a child of God under a new covenant, a covenant brought to us in Jesus. The old covenant earned our place in relationship with God through observance of the law and the temporary covering of sacrificial animals that we had to keep sacrificing over and over because they were simply temporary. The new covenant offers a relationship permanently through faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So the key issue, one of them, facing the early church in the first century was this. Do we still need to follow the old covenant laws of the Jewish people if we're not Jewish, but we believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came for Gentiles as well? That's the question. What do we do? Every letter in the New Testament deals with this tension. Jews were saying you have to be Jewish. Translated circumcised, observing the law. Gentiles wanted to embrace Jesus, but knew nothing about Jewish laws and Jewish customs. And they weren't circumcised physically. The Jews were concerned that if they allowed the Gentiles, these pagans, to access Jesus without requiring the Jewish traditions and laws, that they might bring anything into the church. And they did. The Gentiles who believed in Jesus as the Messiah couldn't see why they would ever follow Jewish customs and laws if those people followed them and they missed the Messiah. Why would we do that? If the Jews rejected Jesus, why would we want to become one would be their perspective. This is the tension that's in the first century audience. All of this is part of the context of the letter. What did it mean to them? And by understanding the context, we gain a perspective to understand all the other letters of the New Testament. This issue faced every 
church, every new church that mixed Gentiles and Jews. And remember, the farther you got from Jerusalem, the fewer Jews there were in the church. As you moved into Galatia and some other areas, they were mostly non-Jewish people who had embraced the story and truth of Jesus from people who believed in him. And God knew this was the biggest, one of the biggest issues facing the new church. He had to prepare the leaders. Peter is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He preached the good news of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah for Jewish people. He focused on getting Jewish people who've rejected Jesus to see their mistake, to repent, and to receive him as Messiah. If you read Peter's sermon in Acts, he's talking to Jewish people. You miss the Messiah. Jesus had told them, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We read this and we insert our 21st century perspective. We see this as a clear command from Jesus to take the message to all the Gentiles all over the world. But there's no way those who first heard this thought that what he was saying. No way. What they heard was this. Go find all the Jewish people who scattered across the world. Go find the 10 lost tribes and their descendants. Go around the world telling the Jewish people that their Messiah has come. They're dispersed from Jerusalem and Samaria and beyond. They're scattered and we need to bring them back and make them disciples. See, because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It would never have crossed their minds in the craziest moment on that mountain that Jesus wanted to invite pagan people into a relationship with him. That, that would have blown their minds. He was the Jewish Messiah. And remember, their context is always first. What did it mean to them before it means something to us? So Peter's in Jerusalem, leading the church of Jesus, calling Jewish people to the Jewish Messiah, wanting to make Jewish disciples and fulfill the destiny of God's chosen people, the Jewish people. They were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So while Peter is focusing on leading the Jewish believers, God is raising up Saul Paul to be prepared to reach the Gentiles. God planned to save the world, but he knew his disciples saw him as the Jewish Messiah. God would have to do something pretty dramatic to make sure that Peter and the other Jewish disciples understood that his message was a message to the world, not just to Jewish people. Peter's in Joppa, a coastal city on the Mediterranean, west of Jerusalem. And we read this. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Three times, we talked about that before. The, the number of certainty. Peter has a vision. God says, look at all these animals. Look at all these dirty, filthy animals. Kill and eat, Peter. And he's like, no, I won't do it. Never done that before. 
God had specifically warned the Jewish people not to eat unclean animals. Deuteronomy 14.3. It won't be on the screens, but I'll highlight it for you. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you can eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the antelope, the mountain sheep. It goes into every animal that has a hoof and hooves and two you can eat. It goes on and he basically says essentially this. You can eat almost any animal as long as it's not a scavenger. If that animal has fed on something dead, it is no longer holy, it is no longer clean. So any animal that feeds on the ground, any animal that goes around cleaning up, any animal like that, pigs, uh, catfish, any animal without scales, they tend to feed on the bottom. Uh, You cannot eat those. They're unclean because they have encountered death. Just like if I'm going as a priest to the temple and I touch a Samaritan guy and he's dying, I'm unclean now because I've touched death. Remember that when the Bible talks about clean and unclean, it's really talking about holy and unholy. So what he's saying is there's certain things you can eat, there's certain things you can't eat. Now there's also dietary restrictions in the Old Testament because they didn't understand anything about meat processing. They didn't understand about refrigeration. They didn't understand parasites and all the things that we look back on and go, oh, that's why he said don't do that. Um, and, And so there are many restrictions and rules, but the primary reason was dead things. You can't eat catfish, you can't eat Eagles, falcons, vultures, comorants, insects, scavengers, bottom feeders, they're all unclean. Stay away from them. Now, Peter was inwardly perplexed. I love the Bible. He's inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he'd seen might mean. Behold, the men were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house. They stood at the gate, and they called out to ask Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And when Peter was pondering the vision... The Spirit said, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter is perplexed. Consider the context. Imagine that you're Peter and bring all the context to this moment. You are the leader of the Jewish church. You have been placed in leadership because Jesus himself asked you, Do you love me? three times. Restored him to be the leader of the church after Peter had denied him three times. Peter's struggling here. What am I going to do? He tells me to rise and eat. You spent your entire life observing Jewish dietary laws, believing that doing so honored God to the point that you would refuse to ever do anything differently, even if Jesus himself told you. You witnessed Jesus on earth for three years observing these very laws. Now you have a vision that you know is from God. And it's repeated three times. And it seems to directly contradict God's scripture. He's inwardly perplexed. That's the understatement. Trying to figure out what the vision means. No doubt Peter's racing through scripture in his mind. He's racing through memories with Jesus trying to figure out what should I do. The law says I should not eat these things. I have a vision that says rise and eat and don't call what God made clean unclean. I have no doubt that Peter most likely thought back to the moment that's recorded in Matthew 15. Jesus called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. 
Peter had no clue what Jesus meant when he said that. Absolutely no clue. How do we know that? Scripture tells us. Look at this. But Peter said to him, I love Peter. He's always the one asking the questions. Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding, Peter? You still don't get it. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. Okay, he remembers that moment. So what are we to do here? Do we follow Jewish dietary laws or not? What about the other Jewish laws? Well, remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. When you get to this point in your Bible study and you're like, I feel what Peter's feeling, where's the answer? You have to go to other Scriptures. The Holy Spirit will lead you there. When you get to that point, you're like, man, I understand what Peter's going through. This dude is struggling. God has told him two different things. God must be wrong. Wait a minute. I know God can't be wrong. It must be our understanding. Holy Spirit, help me understand what's going on here. I don't see it. Remember that when you don't understand Scripture, it's your knowledge and your understanding that's wrong, not the Scriptures. What God made clean, don't call common. That's interesting. We're key observers here, aren't we? We've been learning how to look at Scripture. What God made clean, don't call common. That's past tense. God made these animals clean. From a study of the word, we know it's not that he created them clean. He made them clean. It's the same word used to talk about somebody who's been healed from leprosy. They had leprosy. God made them clean. Go be cleansed. Go to the priest. Hmm. These words mean that he was unclean, animal, unclean. God made him clean. Past tense. Completed act. Interrogate the text. When did this happen? These bottom-feeding animals have been clearly considered unclean for thousands of years. They were unclean for Moses. They were unclean for Saul, David, Solomon, all the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They all knew these animals were unclean. Why are they clean now? What happened? When did it happen? God says he's made them clean. The Jewish laws were in place to point to the coming Messiah who would fulfill them. He would be the final sacrifice. He would be the Lamb of God. He would take away the sins of the world. He would bring meaning and ultimate understanding to what all these practices mean. Jesus himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. In his other words, I came to make unclean things clean. You were unclean. I made you clean. You no longer need to follow the dietary laws because I changed everything, Jesus said. I made everything clean. Let's go deeper. When God first created every animal and man, he looked at his creation and he said, it's very good. He didn't say it's very good except for those unclean animals over there eating off the ground. 
said it's very good. All creation was very good. Every animal created by God and named by Adam were not unclean. They were not unholy. All creation reflected God, reflected his creativity, his majesty. Everything was in perfect relationship with him and with each other. Man was created in his image, given free will, but everything else reflected him. Every tree, plant, star, sky, ocean, mountain, it all was made through him and for him, and he holds it all together. And on day six, God looked and he said, it's very good. Now we know, looking forward in Scripture, that there's a day when we have a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven by God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He'll be their people. God will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Have you ever asked yourself why we need a new heaven and a new earth? I mean, if the sin problem only affected man and you solve man's sin problem, what's wrong with the earth? Think about that for a minute. Now, Isaiah, the prophet, gives us a picture of what it's going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth. He says this. I'll skip down to it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the adder's den. And there shall be no hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what the new world looks like. The new heaven and the new earth. Lions and lambs hanging out together, cobras, nothing killing nothing, nothing challenging anything, nothing doing whatever. By inference, that implies that that was the way it was originally, before something happened. The new heaven and the new earth, everything in harmony, no snake bites, no bear attacks, no mosquito bites. Everything in harmony, no disease, no death, no scavenging, no survival of the fittest. The lion playing with the lamb. That's where we're headed. So we need scripture to help us understand scripture. We're still trying to answer. When did animals become unclean? And when did God make them clean? So let me pause for a minute. You may be thinking, well, look, you got a degree in theology and you know where all these passages are and you're bouncing all over the Bible. I couldn't come up with two of these. Yes, you can. Because the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to put it on your heart. When you begin getting in Scripture, saying, God, what is that? I don't understand. When you begin to interrogate Scripture, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind, if not the passage, at least the idea of, well, Jesus said something about that. And as you allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, He leads you on an adventure of discovery. It's the most incredible thing. He's the one that connects the dots. As you prayerfully interrogate the text, He brings to your mind the connectors. It's incredible. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. When you get in Bible study, the supernatural part of it is you begin to remember things you didn't know you knew. You'll be like, I thought I was asleep when Frank said that, but somehow it's here. John addressed in a similar way the challenges that were in front of the Colossian church. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But it has his anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true, and not a lie, just as it was taught, abide in him. What he's saying is, look, you've got the Holy Spirit now. Let him teach you. You've got the word of God. Let him reveal it to you. As we abide in these texts, as we interrogate the text, as we see the content, as we begin to look at the context, the Holy Spirit reminds us that the animals are unclean and they're unclean because they're scavengers. They eat dead things. And when death comes in, God can't be holy there. He hates death. It wasn't in his plan. Nothing died in the original creation. Where did death come from? It came from our sin. Everything was very good, and then it was not. And in the same moment where he declared us unclean because of our sins, our sins, because we had authority over the earth, now have fallen to all of creation. And somewhere between that moment and this moment in Acts where Peter has a vision, God says, yeah, they were unclean, but they're not anymore. Now, there's a prerequisite for scavengers. In order to be a scavenger and to be unclean, you've got to find something dead. And you've got to eat it. If you don't find something dead, you can't be a scavenger. And death exists in creation for only one reason. We rebelled. All of creation experiences the impact of man's fall from grace. Romans 8, 18. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, all creation is waiting to be set free the same way we've been set free. All of creation is going through groanings in childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. We groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons. All of us are waiting for Jesus to come back, for all his promises to come true. All of us and creation. All of creation suffered because of Adam and Eve's sin. And one day, everything's going to be new. Because it has to be. Because the earth has tasted death as well. You remember when I told you sometimes in Scripture you come to a passage and you have no idea what it means. And you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm going to show you one of those. I didn't want to do this because I thought it would take us on a wild goose chase. Um, but after the flood, God gave Noah specific commands. Let me show you the commands he gave him. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird in the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall the blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Do you see it? For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning, an accounting for the life of every man. Somebody's going to be held accountable for bloodshed in the life of another man. This is the part I don't understand. I've been studying it for 20 years. Every beast, I will require it. What does that mean? Every beast, I will require it. Is the lion going to be held accountable? I don't know. I just know what the word says. It's true. I don't understand it. But you got to get comfortable letting things like that just kind of go. You pray through it. You look at it. You come back and look at it again. God, what does that mean? Well, it must not be time. I don't know. But I know God's word is true. And he says that every animal is going to have a reckoning for the blood it sheds. I don't know. Moving right along. Thought I'd throw that to you. All right. Um, What I do know is that we can't dismiss the link between man's sin and the impact it has on all of creation. That's clear in Scripture beginning to end. Animals have become violent. The world's become a competitive place. Survival of the fittest. Death is inevitable for every creature, including us. And remember, when we don't understand Scripture, the problem's with our understanding, not with the Scripture itself. It hasn't yet been revealed to us. It may be part of a curriculum the Holy Spirit has not yet taught us. It's okay. If we knew it all, we'd be God. Next verse. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What he's saying is all these things that happen in the Old Testament, all the laws, all the the rituals, all the things in the tabernacle, they were a shadow of what's to come. They were pointing to the real Messiah. They were pointing to the one that would take take away the need for sacrifice, the need for shed blood. They were pointing that direction. The key to understanding the idea of should we follow dietary laws and other Jewish laws is in knowing first and foremost that the Jewish laws were given to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, not to everybody. It was given to the Jewish people for specific purposes, some just for them, others for us. Some of the laws were revealed to the Israelites on how to obey and please God, the Ten Commandments, for example, Others were to show the Israelites how to worship God and take care of the sin problem. Then there are other laws intended to make them distinct from all the other people of the world, their dietary clothing rules. But when Jesus died on the cross, he became the substance. He became the fulfillment of everything all those had pointed to. Does that make sense? So every feast in the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah coming. Every ritual about getting to the presence of God, making yourself clean enough to temporarily be able to allow the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, Jesus solved that problem. When Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to Old Testament law, not because he abolished it, but because he completed it. He fulfilled it, the laws, the ritual, the feast. They all point to him. He arrived in all his glory. And when it was finished, he's saying, all those things have been accomplished. Jesus brought a new covenant. He brought a new law for us to follow. There is one commandment in the garden. 
There were thousands of commandments for the Jewish people. And then when Jesus came back, he says, we're down to two. These two things. You shall love the Lord, the God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he set us free in Christ, we don't have to follow those laws because we couldn't do it anyway. We've been set free through our faith in Christ. We don't have to perform our way there. That's the point. Jesus brought a new covenant. It's one of the reasons he came. Now, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Don't misread what I'm saying. Almost everything in the Old Testament falls under the category of loving God and loving your neighbor. It's a good guidepost for knowing what was important to God, to helping you see the heart of God. I kept telling you in the series we did on the tabernacle, I want you to see what God thinks about holiness. I'm not asking you to get a brazen altar in your front yard. I just want you to understand what holiness means to God as it's reflected in the altars of the tabernacle. Ten Commandments were a summary of the Old Testament law. Nine of the Ten Commandments are clearly in the New Testament. They're repeated. Do you know which one is not? Sabbath. Interesting. Obviously, if we're loving God, we won't be worshiping false gods. We won't be bowing down to idols. If we love our neighbors, we won't murder them, lie to them, commit adultery against them, or covet what they have. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to convict people and teach them what's wrong. And to point us to our need to be saved. Paul said it this way. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. I would not have known what to covet was if the law said don't covet. Paul essentially says, look, the law shows me how far I have to go to be perfectly holy in front of God. When I look at the law and I see what God demands, I know I can't meet that. I'm doomed. I can't perform my way to him. But then he tells the Galatians, now before faith came, Christ, we were held in captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In other words, God used the laws of the Old Testament to keep us moral, to keep us in guardrails, to keep us headed down the right way in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're sons of God through faith. You were baptized in Christ, you put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. He doesn't say you're Jewish. According to the promise, you've been grafted in because of Christ, not because of your performance under Jewish law. The Old Testament law was never intended by God to be a universal law for everybody. It was for the Jewish people until their arrival of their Messiah. As Christians, we have two laws. Love God, love your neighbors. If we fulfill those two laws to the best of our ability with the power of the Holy Spirit, we will meet the other one any other requirement God has. It's simple. Jesus said, I came to set you free from the burden of all these laws. 
Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He's saying the law can't save you. The law can't fix you. You can't perform your way to salvation. John says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Paul in Romans, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. Galatians 4, 3, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redeem those who were under the law. Set free people from the burden of performance and human effort and instead be adopted as sons of God in faith. Paul is telling those at Colossae, you're not under the law anymore. They were written for Jewish people before Jesus came as the Messiah. They were shadows, but he's the real deal. Now that these, he has come, these laws have no hold on you. He came to set you free from them. And because of your faith, you're free. Don't let anybody deceive you. Make sure you know that you're free in Christ. The whole point of the Old Testament law is to show you that you couldn't measure up, that you needed a Savior. There's no way you could obey all those laws. You'll never, you'll never please God through human accomplishment. The Jewish laws were Jewish laws for Jews, not for Christians. They were to show Jewish people how to live. They helped separate Jewish people from their pagan neighbors. They helped maintain the lineage of the Messiah. But, but once Jesus came, because of our faith in Jesus, we've been set free from the bondage of that kind of performance. We walk in the assurance of grace through faith. And what Paul is telling those at Colossae is false teachers are coming. They're going to try to once again pull you back into the burden of obeying the laws. They're going to try to convince you that you get special knowledge by doing certain Jewish rituals and facts. And Paul warns them, don't fall for it. Jewish rituals and laws should mean nothing to you now. You're Christians. You've been set free in Christ. It's time to live like it, Paul would say. If observing the Old Testament laws would have made you righteous, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and I'll close with this. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he's furious on this particular point. He addresses to them the same message that he addresses with the Colossians. But the Colossians he does not know, so he's kind of polite. The Galatians he knows very well, and he blasts them. Let me show you. Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who you called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I can't believe you're believing this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was portrayed as crucified. You saw it. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh of the law? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. 
But now faith has come, and you're no longer under a guardian. And he goes on, like we saw before, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, female. You're all in Christ Jesus. You're all children of the living God. You don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to be pagan. You need to start acting like Christians. Don't fall for these Jewish mystics, Jewish Orthodox teachers, or pagan teachers. They're coming. They have nothing to offer you because you need to realize that you are free in Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, if you accept the Jewish way of finding God, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you've fallen away from grace. If you want to go back and try to relive in the law, go ahead, but you're lost. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith working through love. He continues, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul is livid. What are you doing? Now, I realize this isn't a popular thing to challenge, but since I'm here, we're going to go ahead and do this. Um, Here's what Paul's saying. There are no Jewish Christians. There are no pagan Christians. There are no Messianic Jews. You're either Jewish or you're in Christ. That's the point. Paul is making that point with the Galatians. Many today try to blend too many things into Christianity. The early church was creating a new endeavor, a new thing in Christ. Just like the world will be new, everything is new because we've been absolved of our sins. Too many people want to incorporate the traditions and the rituals and the burdens of the law on those who in faith have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. I think sometimes they must have just skipped Galatians and Colossians. If you grew up Jewish in your faith, you have to leave that behind and embrace Jesus fully as a Christian. If you leave Jehovah's Witnesses in your faith, you have to leave that completely behind and become a Christ follower in Christ. If you leave Mormonism or Muslim or any other belief system that's not Jesus, you have to completely leave it and go follow Jesus the way the New Testament tells you to obey. Here's why it's so important. Remember that our relationship with God and Christ is a relationship of marriage, a covenant, of a lifelong covenant. In Scripture, over and over, it says you have to leave and cleave. A lot of people try to hold on to their old traditions and embrace Christ on top of it. It happened in the early church all over the place. And the problem was they never fully embraced Christ because they were still holding on to the past. And Paul's telling the Colossians and he's telling us, look, you've been saved through those restrictions By faith, it's time to live like that. It's like Christ has set you free and you're still staying in your jail cell. Why do you still burden yourself with rules and regulations? Just love the Lord with everything you have and go love other people. It would be like Tammy and I moving away from the homeowners association. They come to our door in our new neighborhood, they knock. We get a knock on the door, and there they are welcoming us to the new neighborhood, then giving us their rules and restrictions, and telling us that we're out of compliance, giving us 30 days to power spray the drive and repaint the numbers on our mailbox, which is, by the way, six inches too high. Paul says, remember who you are. 
Don't be deceived by those trying to bring old laws and covenants into your new walk with Christ. Jewish rituals, feasts, Sabbaths, they're fantastic. They show us the, the important things of God. They point to Jesus, but they don't define your walk in Christ. You've been set free. Live like it. That's what it means to be free in Christ. Know who you really are. Know whose you really are. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. False teachers are everywhere trying to hold you in bondage to all kinds of ideas. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then love others as yourself. Everything comes from those two. He whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your scripture interprets scripture. That when we need answers, we can go to your word. I thank you, God, that you love us enough to be patient with us as we're trying to learn. Thank you, God, that we no longer have to live under the burden of performance. That we no longer have to live under the burden of trying to follow laws that we just can't follow in our sinful nature. Thank you, God, that you knew we need to be saved. You knew we couldn't do it. And you sent Jesus. And it's through faith that we believe. God, help us to walk in that faith every day. Help us to not feel the burden of prying eyes and judgment from you. You've already judged Jesus in our place. So God, until we're reunited with you in the end times when Jesus returns, keep us pursuing you with our heart and our soul and our mind and our spirit. Teach us to love other people. And then God, with our heart fully focused on you, fully led by the Holy Spirit, give us the desires to do what you want so that we can see your glory in our life. We love you, we thank you for these truths, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. 